This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon, happy Mother's Day, and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's a compelling memoir of Holocaust survival and its impact on the next generation. I talked to Marsha Lederman about her new book, Kiss the Red Stairs. And a million Canadians will be growing some of their own food for the first time this season. We'll dig into this trend. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The seasonal flu vaccine may prevent more than just the virus. It may also lower your risk of a major cardiovascular event like a heart attack or stroke. A new study based on clinical trials from 2000 to last year found that nearly 5.5% in the unvaccinated group experienced a cardiac event compared to just over 3.5% who got the shot, amounting to a 34% lower risk. New draft guidelines from the UK's National Health Service recommend exercise as the core treatment for people with wear and tear joint arthritis. The agency says it may hurt to begin with, but can then ease pain and help individuals with osteoarthritis stay supple, healthy, and slim. Osteoarthritis is very common. Almost 4 million Canadians 20 or older have been given the diagnosis. Symptoms range from mild to severe. The new guidelines say physical activity should be the main treatment, not painkillers. We are in countries like India and Pakistan really hitting the limits of adapting to heat. There is a certain limit beyond which humans cannot survive this kind of heat. India climate researcher Dr. Chandni Singh says her country faces weeks of blackouts as blistering 115-degree temperatures fuel record demand and coal stockpiles shrink. During this heat wave, the average maximum temperature for northwest and central India has been the highest since records began 122 years ago, reaching between 36 and 37.78 degrees Celsius. Experts say over a billion people will be subjected to excessive heat, and that's 10% of the world's population. The Great Resignation is becoming the Great Midlife Crisis. Older, more tenured people are increasingly quitting their jobs now compared to early in the pandemic when the trend was led by younger workers in low-paying industries. Now the main growth in quit rates is coming from older workers in higher-paid sectors like finance, tech, and other fields, according to data from two separate human resources and analytics companies. Anymore. That's Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz. The niece of a long-dead priest is suing to block the sale of one of her iconic Wizard of Oz dresses 
that was missing for decades. Barbara Hartke says the famous frock belonged to her uncle, Dominican father Gilbert Hartke, founder of the Catholic University's drama department, after the actress Mercedes McCambridge gave it to him. It was presumed lost until it was found in a garbage bag on university property last year, and the university is claiming it. The blue and white gingham dress is slated to be sold at auction on May 24th and expected to bring between $800,000 and $1.2 million. Barbara Hartke is seeking an injunction to prevent the sale. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Marsha Lederman first learned that her family went through the Holocaust at the age of five. But it has taken all these years to learn about their epic stories of survival and to understand their impact on her. Her new book is called Kiss the Red Stairs. My conversation with her was intensely personal because my parents also went through the Holocaust and I'm still trying to piece together their very different stories of survival. You date the turning point or your first awareness to a day when you were five years old and you asked your mother why you didn't have grandparents. Yes. I had my made my first friend, Pearl, and I was hanging out at her house a lot. And she had these amazing grandparents. And I thought, why don't I have those? So, you know, five years old, I came home and asked my mother what I thought was a very simple, innocent question. And, of course, you know, my poor mother would have been blindsided by this because I'm sure she was not expecting this question at that moment. And the answer she gave me, her answer to me was that I didn't have grandparents because the Germans hated the Jews and they killed Jews in these gas showers. And that's why I didn't have grandparents. That's what happened to my grandparents. And, you know, poor little five-year-old me was astounded at this answer, just shocked and didn't quite know what to make of it. Did you ask her more about it or did it just kind of gestate in there? It shut me down. That answer was really startling and it just caused me to wonder all kinds of things. Like, first of all, how does that work? What what do these gas showers look like? Do they look like the shower in our bathroom and then gas just comes out of the spout? And and if so, how does that kill you? The next level of questioning was, who are Germans? Uh, I, d- I didn't know about that. And do they still hate us? Um, and what had we done to make them hate us so much? So these were the questions that were swirling around my five-year-old brain that, no, I did not ask my parents about because I understood sort of implicitly that asking this sort of question was clearly going into dangerous territory. Both in my family and other families, children of Holocaust survivors, there are things that you always kind of knew, but in snippets, not in a whole kind of a story. Was that your experience? That is such a great way to describe it. There were things like little phrases that would float around. I had this understanding that something bad had happened to my parents. There wasn't a lot of food. There was some hiding involved. Family members were absent. Uh, 
but I didn't really understand it sort of chronologically, A to B to C, etc. And I sort of learned the story through osmosis. I always knew why I didn't have grandparents. I never asked. And I knew that there was the war and they had lost their families. Always knew that and didn't ask. I grew up in Montreal and it was also a community of largely of survivors. My parents would not have called themselves survivors. That was kind of reserved for people who had been in concentration camps. And and I remember that when we'd meet some of those people, my mother would kind of whisper in my ear, he's a survivor, or he was in camp. And in that, camp, yes. Yeah. My father was not in a concentration camp. He was in the ghetto. He was a forced laborer. His story is horrific uh, in a different way than my mother's was, but I never considered her to be a survivor and not him. To me, they were both survivors of the war. I guess I didn't really understand that there was a difference between my parents in terms of their survivor stories. Like, my mother had the tattoo on her arm, but my father did not. But I didn't understand what that meant in terms of their different experiences. Tell me your mother, when and how was she taken to Auschwitz? So my mother was 14, living in Radom, Poland, when the Nazis invaded Poland. And the next year, when she was 15, by that point living in the ghetto, she and a friend were approached by a guard on the street and forced to go to work setting up some barracks for the guards that would be watching over the ghetto. And then they were forced to move in there. While she was in that living situation, the ghetto was liquidated and her parents and little brother were sent to Treblinka and murdered there. My mother, then the barracks had to close up because there were no Jews left or very few Jews left there to oversee. And she um, thankfully got work at a munitions factory, got work, I mean, she was a slave laborer, at a munitions factory in Radom or just outside of Radom. And she was there until 1944. And in August of 1944, she was transferred to Auschwitz. And she was there for three months. And by some miracle, she was one of a few hundred women selected to go to a satellite camp of Buchenwald in Germany proper and work at a munitions factory there. Again, slave laborer, but way better than Auschwitz. My mother was working in a munitions factory in Russian-occupied Poland. And she was evacuated in the middle of the night with the whole factory as the Germans were advancing because they were both occupying Poland at the same time. And she ended up in the Soviet Union and she met my father on the run. And did they, they met in the Soviet Union? Yep. They met on this in the Soviet Union. He was from Latvia. He had stolen a bicycle And she met him on a boat when he was humming a Jewish song, and they kept going further south, 
and they got married in Tajikistan and had my brother there. Isn't that amazing? The things that these people did, and I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing these stories and didn't realize that my parents were actually heroes. They, they were heroic in what they did to survive. I didn't grow up hearing very much of this, very little of it, actually. Your father's story is epic. Did you hear a lot of it growing up? No. I heard, I heard um, very little, just bits and pieces. My father's escape story I learned from my mother after my father died, long after he died. I wish I'd been able to ask him these questions, but I I did not. And that's a big, I hope, message from this book that people should ask their parents, their grandparents, whoever's around, ask the questions about their lives because these are important things to know. Marsha Lederman, thanks so much. Thank you. Marsha Lederman is the author of Kiss the Red Stairs, The Holocaust Once Removed. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, one of the few good things coming out of the pandemic, a huge surge in gardening. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. It's one of the few good things coming out of COVID. Gardening is more popular than ever, and a new study estimates a cool million of us are getting into it for the first time this season. I reached study author Janet Music at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. A million Canadians will be gardening for the first time this season. Wow. Were you surprised by this? I wasn't surprised by this completely because we had seen when, you know, COVID-19 kind of was first on the scene and during the first wave that people were, you know, nervous about the supply chain. And I think people thought about their food in a way they've never had before because we take it for granted. And since then, people have been paying more attention to how far their food travels, how many people touch their food, you know, shipping and manufacturing. And people really are turning to food that they feel is, you know, more nutritious, is better for the environment. And and then a lot of times that means growing it yourself. How much of this is because we've seen such huge food inflation? The food price inflation is concerning. And, and it's interesting because it affects everybody regardless of their income status. And so, you know, of course, people who are are precariously employed or who have a lot of people in their households are closer to food insecurity than those maybe who, you know, have double income or, 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 you know, firmly middle class. But, you know, people are nervous about how, how much inflation can increase on us in terms of you know, the war in the Ukraine and, and just inflation in the States, all of those things. Turning to gardening, though, for the first time, there's a lot of upfront costs and a lot of time commitment if you're brand new to this, because there is a bit of a learning curve. We have a very 
challenging climate here in Canada when it comes to growing uh, food. You know, it could be too wet or too hot. And, and it can be expensive. You know, there's a lot of specialized tools and, and seeds and know-how. So does it save money for first-timers? That's kind of unclear, but definitely people who are more seasoned, I guess you would say, uh, will be saving a bit of money by growing their own food. How many people, what percentage would be doing it to save money on food? We did ask that question, and 41% of the people who say they are growing, so, you know, 41% of about half the Canadians, are saying they are doing it to save money. So many of them will be, you know, um, been gardening for many, you know, cycles. What percentage would be doing it because they want better quality food than what's available, than what they could buy? Well, a lot of people feel that food out of the garden actually tastes better. And about half of the people who are growing food think that food is better quality coming out of stores. And certainly, you know, if you're buying things that are coming from South or Central America, it's traveled quite a long way to get to Canada. And so, you know, in terms of food miles, the, you know, cost in terms of fossil fuels is definitely lower if you're growing something fresh from the garden. And, you know, as Canadians, we love those summertime foods. You know, here in Nova Scotia, we have hodgepodge, which is only made with the freshest food coming out of the ground. And of course, there's local fruit in the summer in Ontario, the peaches, you know, they do taste better because they're not stored as long. Looking at your survey, most people are taking up gardening because they think it's fun. That's right. And there's lots of evidence to say that gardening is actually really good for your mental health. It's to be outside and working with your hands and working on something that you are literally growing. It's very good for you. And so people who turned to gardening during COVID, you know, were able to continue, you know, that social community connection They were focused on something that was positive and, you know, it's thrilling when you get your first kind of seedling that's hatching and you've got little leaves. And so it's very good for you. It's good for us mentally. And, and it's been a tough couple of years, you know, it's been a, it's been a marathon COVID-19 and, and with rising food prices, I think people are turning to those things that really give them comfort and, and gardening is absolutely one of those things. Do you have advice for people looking to take this up for the first time? You know, there's a lot of online communities on different social media platforms. So, you know, really turn to some of those free things that are online to get advice and meet other gardeners. And and they kind of will serve that purpose for growing food for your food security, but will also, you know, introduce you to new people and be better for, you know, social cohesion and overall well-being. Janet Music, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Janet Music at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.